Kia ora. Welcome to this podcast series, Making Money a Force for Good. I'm Barry Coates, I'm founder of Mindful Money. In this series, we're talking to the pioneers who are using investment to make a better future. I hope you enjoy this seminar. Kia ora. Namihi nui ki I'm Barry Coates, I'm founder and CEO of Mindful Money. Uh, we're a charity that enables the public to use their money as a force for good. Uh, welcome to this online seminar. It's the eighth in our series. Uh, we've had some great discussions so far. So uh, you're welcome to check out the videos and the summaries on Mindful Money's events webpage. Um, today, we've uh, we've got a, uh, um, a really interesting session. It's uh, We've titled it, What's ESG Management? And why does it make a difference? So, uh, without further ado, it's a great pleasure today to welcome a, uh, a terrific panel. So, uh, thank you all very much for, for coming. I'm going to introduce them uh, one by one uh, before we start talking. So, um, uh, Philip Houghton Brown is uh, Chief Executive. Chief Investment Officer at Mercer Funds, and I'm very sorry, Philip, that I uh, accidentally elevated your status to CEO uh, uh, in an early uh, uh, in an early draft. So I hope you didn't get into trouble for that one. Um, Philip has uh, 23 years of investment experience, including uh, being Chief Investment Officer at OnePath ANZ. Uh, he's also worked in London for AMP Asset Management and FPG Research. Um, so a little known fact about Philip is that he has ridden the Mercer Supercycle, a 1,000-kilometer charity cycling event, uh, uh, a couple of times. Uh, and he's a passionate advocate for commuting by bike, as I've seen uh, when I've been on my bike. So... Uh, um, so thank you very much uh, for, for coming, Philip. Uh, Simon O'Grady is uh, Chief Investment Officer at, at Kiwi Wealth. Simon has spent uh, 25 years working in investment management across uh, many different areas of investment strategy. I won't list them all, but they are uh, many and, and point to, to a very broad experience. And uh, was formerly with the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, uh, managing their foreign reserve investment portfolios. Uh, Simon is uh, currently a director of the CFA uh, Chartered uh, Accountants Society of New Zealand. So welcome, Simon. Thank you very much for, for joining us. Pleasure. Um, uh, Rebecca Swan is ESG investment specialist, client advocate and head of product at, at AMP Capital. Um, she's worked in the funds management industry for over 23 years. So there's a Theme going across all of the panel here. All of them have been in the investment industry for over 20 years. Uh, outside of work, she uh, supports uh, a number of not-for-profit organisations. It's great stuff, including Women in Super, uh, the Good Registry, and uh, the Akina Investment Advisory Group. Uh, Rebecca loves uh, F45 and is, is uh, happy to be back there post-lockdown I had to ask what F45 is, uh, and it just shows my uh, my ignorance. And it's a uh, a fitness training program, and I'm sure a lot of the people uh, on this call know exactly what F45 is. Uh, so Rebecca's a, a Q 
keen advocate and, and uh, a passionate participant. Um, thank, thanks all. This is, uh, this is great. Let's uh, dive straight in. Um, one of the things we wanted to do was to kind of demystify what we mean by some of these terms and to pri start off with, with a, a straightforward kind of here's, here's what we're talking about here. So we've nominated a member of uh, the panel to address each one of, of three issues, and Simon is going to kick off uh, explaining uh, about ESG analysis uh, and, and how it's used to analyze risks and impacts, and maybe Simon can uh, kick off with, with deconstructing the three-letter acronyms uh, for us uh, up front. Sure. Thanks, Barry, and, uh, and thanks for the opportunity uh, to, to be speaking to the audience today. Uh, look, so quick little background, ESG, RI, Ethical Investment, a whole lot of acronyms. So ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance, uh, the three big elements, if you like, of responsible and ethical investing. Um, and, and is really applied in investment portfolios in, in two broad and particular ways. Um, so one is in a general sense where you might see an exclusion. So there might be a whole category such as no carbon based or no weapons or um, no, no whaling companies, not that there are any. Uh, and, and so at a high level, it might, it might uh, apply responsible investing, ESG at a pure exclusion. And often most processes will, will have some form of exclusion or other. Um, Another level, if you like, or way it's applied, particularly in, in funds that might be towards the passive end of the spectrum, uh, an, an index type base where there are thousands of different securities that sit inside a portfolio, is that there will be a, a screening out of companies. So rather than just straight exclusion of a sector, uh, there will be a, a screening of, of those thousands of companies on a variety of different metrics, environmental, social and governance. And so on that basis, companies might be excluded or included into, into the structure of investing. Now, that'll often be accompanied also with some sort of proxy voting, again, because there's thousands of securities uh, in portfolios of that style. It's just too difficult and too complicated and resource intensive uh, to, to be looking at every com company in that. And so it'll be outsourced to to a number of different proxy voting entities that will vote shares along particular voting lines on behalf of investors in those portfolios. Uh, and then there's a, a third, if you like, application of it at a deeper level. And you'll often see these in active type strategies, which are smaller portfolios, more condensed. Uh, there might only be dozens of companies in these types of condensed portfolios where really intensive research is done right at the security and company level. Uh, and they'll be looking at the governance of, of those companies, at their environmental credentials. Um, they'll also be looking at the social impact, either at the societies they're operating in uh, or looking at their employment relationships, et cetera, uh, employee and, and employer relationships. And, and so those factors will be taken into account right at the, at the selection of the individual companies as well. Uh, and, and that collectively is known by responsible investing or, or often um, is conjoined with the concept of ethical investing, I imposing some ethical lens on the, the way that investments are made. So that's a, a quick little snapshot, high level, what ESG is about. Great. Thank you very much. That's, that's really helpful. And you just want to sort of follow up a little bit, Simon, and, and just saying 
a bit about uh, Kiwi Wealth's use of, of uh, ESG investing in particular? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, we apply all the above. Uh, so we start with an exclusion level where something that is unconscionable or clearly uh, working against the general accepted principles in New Zealand society is excluded. So that's uh, controversial weapons. Um, we certainly exclude whaling, exclusions of, of tobacco and so forth. Uh, we've elected not to, at this stage, completely exclude all carbon-based uh, companies, electing instead for what we call an engaged-type model. Um, so while we will exclude certain companies in that type of a sector out of portfolios because of their behaviour or they're really uh, across the line, there are a, numbers, a number of others that are actually either improving the way they behave or actually part of the solution because they're heavy investors in R&D and, and clean and renewable energies. Uh, and so we've taken an approach at this point to to allow some of those into the company, uh, but uh, into the portfolios, those companies into portfolios, uh, but certainly high levels of DD done on them. So we have investment processes that are index based. And so there's thousands of stocks and we outsource um, much of the, the voting processes along our lines that we stipulate. And we also uh, utilise external providers such as uh, Miski ESG Ratings, uh, particularly Sustainalytics, another well-known offer, and there's others as well who do a lot of the, the hard work for us in, in giving us ratings across, across the ESG dimensions uh, that we can apply. Uh, but we also run highly concentrated active type portfolios and fixed interest and equities particularly, and, and also in some of the alternative space. And at that point, we're, we're running detailed types of analytics on the companies that we include uh, and actually put quite an emphasis on engagement, uh, both through voting and also directly on a number of occasions with the companies to try and affect change. Cool. We'll, uh, we'll come back to some of the engagement uh, issues uh, in a minute. Um, I'll pass to, to Philip. Um, uh, and, and I've asked Philip in particular, um, he has a specialty, I gather, in, in portfolio construction. So uh, how, how ESG analysis and ESG management is used in constructing uh, portfolios. Over to you. Thanks, Barry. And uh, Kira, everybody. Um, so... I mean, firstly, um, what is ESG management? I think Simon's already explained that well. I mean, it's essentially is to include, you know, the environmental, social and governance factors in investment decisions. Um, and to illustrate it, I'm going to explain how we do it at Mercer um, because we're a manager of managers um, and a number of, you know, a number of KiwiSaver providers in, in New Zealand have, have, you know, a similar approach being manager of managers. So, what it means is we're selecting specialist investment managers in New Zealand and from around the world for different sectors, uh, such as international shares or emerging markets, property and infrastructure. Um, and our manager researchers, um, who are also sort of based around the world, they rate all of the investment managers, you know, both on their investment capability, but also the degree to which they incorporate ESG factors and stewardship um, which is the proxy and engagement side of things, into their investment process. And, and all the managers get rated on a scale of one to four, um, and that includes both active and passive managers, which you know, Simon talked about will we'll do things a bit differently. Um, so that ESG rating is an important driver of then how we select the managers for our funds. Um, and essentially, we're continually looking to enhance the average ESG rating of the managers that we select for our funds. So 
over time, we want to see the, you know, the weighted average rating get better. Um, and we've certainly seen investment managers have been stepping up um, and getting better at this you know, over the past 10 years that, that our researchers have, have been doing those ratings. So looking at the next step, which is how ESG influences the construction of those managers' portfolios. So a manager with a strong rating, um, uh, the, the ESG factors will be uh, deeply embedded every step of the way. So their portfolio managers uh, and their analysts will be acutely aware of the ESG risks and the opportunities for the companies that they're investing in. They'll include ESG factors as really as part of the analysis of the, you know, the security, the share or, the, or, the, or, or some other asset that they're researching and weight them appropriately alongside the more you know, traditional financial metrics. And then when it comes to them constructing their portfolios, they'll tilt towards the higher rated companies, um, they'll penalise the weaker ones, and they may even exclude the worst performing companies. Some managers might look to only own the best in class companies for each sector, uh, while others might hold companies um, you know, where they see the potential for improvement and then sort of actively vote and engage to, to drive that change. And you'll hear more about that from Rebecca. So um, other strategies finally could involve targeting a particular theme, um, such as companies you know, providing solutions to you know, sustainability challenges out there, which you know, could be a whole range of areas such as you know, health or education, um, waste, public transport, um, and of course, you know, environmental, environmentally fo focused as well, such as renewable energy um, and water. Cool, thank you. Um, let's, uh, let's crack on and, and uh, that's, that's a, a really useful overview so far of ESG analysis. There's another side to it, which is which is the, we often called stewardship or, or engagement. So, Rebecca, can you can you uh, talk us through um, what what the uh, what the methodologies are and, and what happens on engagement? Sure. So, um, for us at AMP Capital, um, our ethical funds have a really clear mission. Basically, we're investing for the longer term with an aim to make the world a better place. Um, I'll talk about just very quickly how, how we do that. So we've got a three-pronged approach. The first is that we um, exclude companies and assets that have a significant um, negative social impact, so things like alcohol and tobacco, um, uranium, nuclear, um, armaments, pornography, gambling. Uh, we also have a fossil fuel policy, which we don't invest in companies that derive more than 10% of the revenue from the most intensive fossil fuels, like thermal mining, coal, and transportation, the exploration and development of oil sands and the conversion of coal to liquid fuel stock and to name a few and that's evolved over time. Um, the second thing that we do and Simon and Philip have talked about this and that's about we invest um, in companies that have or use investment managers that are at the better end of the spectrum with regards to their ESG integration and um, and the third aspect, which we actually think is the most important aspect, and actually we think it also brings it to light for investors and for our clients, is the fact that we're an active manager. So Simon talked about active and passive management before. Um, we're actively engaging with companies and boards to make change um, and also actively voting um, actively on shareholder resolutions. So you may have heard Simon use the term proxy voting. So that's we exercise your right as an owner in a company to um, 
I guess, tell the company how you're feeling about an issue. So it might be about the voting of an incoming director. It may be about remuneration for the board or a CEO, or it could also be about, um, you know, perhaps a, a climate change strategy that the business is looking to um, implement and support. So this, this third aspect is a really important aspect to us, and it's crucial to our mission to making the world a better place. So I thought I'd just spend a little bit of time just talking about how engaging with companies work. So um, what are the positives for the company and what are the positives for the investor? And further on in the discussion, I'll give you some examples. Um, so so engagement is really important. It's not just about making change, but it's also for the investor about deepening their understanding of the company so that the investor can make better informed investment decisions to therefore give better return outcomes for our investors. So it's about mitigating risk and also finding some really interesting investment opportunities. So Simon and Philip also drew a couple of examples of these. So there might be renewable energy, and um, you know, wind farms, social infrastructure, things like that. So, so engaging with companies directly provides benefits to also the company. So it highlights the importance to the company around what the expectations of investors are of them and also enhances their accountability um, to their investor base. It also sometimes helps put issues into a context of what it actually means for their business. So it gives them a greater understanding of the, of the issues. Um, and also gives them some insights to what investors actually think or understand about their business. So as you can see, these insights could actually give companies a lot of tips and insights as to um, how they could improve their strategy or more importantly, perhaps improve on how they communicate and disclose their strategy as well. So it's a win-win for both the investor and the company. And sometimes the company is actually doing some really great stuff, but they're just not telling people about it or making it visible or transparent for the investor to see. Um, engagement also gives companies insights as to what the latest ESG trends are or concerns may be in the market. It allows them to get feedback and maybe um, spot some gaps within their own business strategy and develop their ESG knowledge. Um, for example, there may be uh, an issue emerging in their sector that they operate and the investor may highlight this and question them about it. And it may actually um, allow them to maybe... Um, you know, stop gap in their business and maybe resource their business differently to address this issue. So for the investor, um, it's really important. ESG defines the expectations and gives greater insights and gives us more accurate company information um, while also enhancing the investor communication and accountability, which enables us to make better investment decisions by mitigating this risk, looking for better investment outcomes to deliver on better return outcomes for investors. So as you can see, engagement is a really powerful tool. Cool. Thank you, Rebecca. That's uh, that's great. So that, that kind of lays out the, the territory, what ESG is, the analysis, the management, the engagement. Um, for, for a lot of people who, who um, send us questions on Mindful Money, they, um, they don't necessarily understand the ESG processes. So I think that's, that's really helpful. Um, some people also see that um, virtually all investment funds say they use ESG. Um, so there is there is there's always questions about so so you know how effective is your fund in doing it? Does it really work and so on? I, I would point out to to the audience that these three funds, uh, um, Mercer Kiwi Wealth and NAMP Capital, are, are three uh, of the funds that have been certified 
for their, their ESG processes and the integrity of their processes by the Responsible Investment Association there. And for that reason, we feature them on the Mindful Money website as, as the, the uh, uh, particularly credible uh, uh, ESG providers. So, so uh, um, but, but I thought what might be helpful for the audience is if we could do a fairly quick round uh, round the table on, um, so how does it make a difference? You know, when you do this ESG management, how does it make a difference in terms of the things that 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 people recognise? You know, the fact that it's actually an improvement to the environment, or it provides better social performance by companies, or that they're governed better. You know, how how, how do you kind of uh, judge whether it makes a difference, and uh, uh, how do your process assure assure that it will make a difference? And I'll I'll start off first with Rebecca. Okay, thanks, Barry. I think that's a really great question, and I think for our clients and for our investors, um, you know, like I said before, this is the part that brings it to life. And um, when they choose to put their money into a fund that's doing things differently and investing ethically, they want to understand what it is that we're doing on their behalf. So um, I thought it would be fun actually just to go back over the last 15 years and look at some of the things that we've made a difference on um, through the engagement that we've done. And this has not just been through us directly, it's also been through joint collaboration with other like-minded investors. Um, And these are some of the things that I found. So um, in 2006, one of our fund managers discovered that Toyota was using slave labour in its supply chain and started lobbying for change. On the back of that, the US government started investigating and the company's behaviour changed. Um, In 2011, one of our own ESG analysts went to Bangladesh and witnessed firsthand human rights abuses in factories that Australian companies were using to make clothing. Um, And so we brought the issue to the attention of the local investment community and called for change. Um, And now, as some of you may be aware, we've got the Modern Slavery Act, which is now forcing Australian companies and New Zealand companies operating in Australia to understand where they are buying from and what their supply chain is and how the workers in those factories are treated. Um, So now we're part of a global investor coalition demanding that factory workers are paid enough to get them above the poverty line, so making a change with regards to social issues. Um, And we've also done some work on payday lenders. So often, you know, these people are lending to, um, to people who are the most vulnerable socially. Um, we questioned the big banks as to whether any of them were funding the sector, and one of them was. We asked them to stop, and they did. Um, so now that makes it much more difficult for people like cash converters in the world to run their business. Um, our head of governance single-handedly stopped the directors of one of the big banks from receiving automatic fee increases from their director fees, and that's where they get year-on-year on increases in their director fees. Um, where most of us have to fight for every cent that we get in terms of pay increases. So there's some really good, you know, changes that have occurred over the years. In terms of some of the things that we're working on now, we're calling for living a living wage for the factory workers across the world. Um, we're tackling child labour in the cocoa industry where 2 million children are estimated to work every day. Um, we're doing a lot of work with social media companies around personal information and we've also joined a global media collaboration um, along with KiwiWealth and Mercer, which is around 100 investors representing $7.5 trillion on the back of the the live streaming of the Christchurch mosque attacks that occurred last year, which was, you know, just horrific, Um, and also the objectionable content 
around that, and that's being led by New Zealand Super in New Zealand. We're also calling for gender diversity and equal pay across all levels of listed companies. And on climate change, we're leading the global engagement with BHP and West Farmers. Um, so we've got 50 trillion US dollars behind us on that collaboration with like-minded investors trying to enforce change. And some of the things that we're focusing on this year are climate change and water, diversity beyond gender, human rights and supply chain, um, executive remuneration, and then plastic and waste, as well as activating our um, right to vote on these issues. So we actively vote on all of our issues, uh, sorry, all of our companies. And we publish our proxy voting every year um, and talk about the engagement in our annual proxy voting report. And we also publish our annual engagement every year for investors to see. So it just helps it bring it to life. Cool. Thank you, Rebecca. That's, uh, I mean, I think it also gives people the appreciation that uh, when they pay management fees to, to investment funds, actually there's a lot that they don't see that happen behind the scenes that is uh, influence over these companies that, uh, that is a, a really positive, uh, positive influence. So that's great. Um, can I pass uh, pass to you, Simon? What what uh, um, you know from your perspective? What are the key issues around making a difference and uh, through engagement and, and ESG management? Yeah, look, uh, there's not a lot to add. I think Rebecca uh, very well argued the case for for investment managers be implementing ESG responsible investing and in what they do. It really does make an impact. Um, you know, often we, we have customers and clients who say, well, we're relatively small in a world full of trillions of dollars. How, how could we make an impact? And I, I think Rebecca's shown that when you add uh, a lot of funds together, you have a lot of impact. Um, and, a, and, a, and a couple of other examples, um, illustrations for us. So uh, Starbucks, again, there was a, a company vote that was put to, to their AGM uh, asking them to move to renewable uh, cups and to uh, to ban plastic straws, and they listen to it and they implement it. So you know that's a that's a palpable level right down to the to the level of plastic straws or renewable oh. straws. But you know these are all adding up to have quite some impact. Uh, you know there's the very clear um, clear uh, NZ Super led coalition uh, engaging with the, uh, the the Facebook, Twitters, Alphabets, et cetera, uh, that really did have an impact. It, it, it really did resonate and was was listened to. Uh, you know, we've got a, a host of examples, uh, particularly in that, in that grey area of carbon-based companies or those who might be in resources who are really starting to listen to this, this larger shareholder of institutional coalitions and bases uh, of course, voting independently, but but all moving in the same direction that's being listened to. So uh, we can start to see actions being taken uh, and the likes of BHP is a, is a big one where they really have started to take on ESG as a company and embed it what they do. Uh, you look at the oil companies. So, um, you know, the, the large uh, oil companies around the world are now formally starting to to report their, their carbon footprint, which was one of the big uh, pushes uh, that was advocated by institutional investors on a whole lot of retail investors' behalves. And so we're starting to get really some some impetus here. And I would emphasise it's only only just beginning and it really is a groundswell that's getting a lot of support. Um, so I, th I think we're all contributing to that in, in our own small way, uh, but it's really starting to have a major impact globally. So is it, is it fair to say, Simon, that, that 
your direct attention and direct involvement is a bit more Australia and New Zealand, and you tend to work through coalitions to influence a bit more for international equities and bonds. Is that is that the way that that you generally exercise that influence? Um, yeah, that's certainly true. So we're larger per size here, although we tend to be focused as a global investor. So a lot of what we do is also very globally focused on some of these uh, very large companies uh, as well. Uh, but certainly we can have a lot more impact in, in a local type of scene than we can individually overseas. But I emphasise everyone contributing, doing a little bit in a line fashion is, is the key to this. Yep. Okay, cool. So um, if I can pass to you, Philip, um, can you give us a perspective on uh, Mercer's uh, 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 sort of examples from, from making a difference? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I was, I was going to say that the three, sort of three areas where ESG management can make a difference, in it, and uh, Rebecca and Simon have really covered off the engagement um, uh, and stewardship side of things very well. The other is the other two areas, one is perhaps less direct and the other one is perhaps more direct. So. Um, the less direct side is just, you know, the financial impact which results from how much or how little um, ESG conscious investors want to invest in the shares or bonds that a company issues. So if investors um, sort of en masse shy away from companies with a poor ESG track record um, and simply don't invest in their, in their um, shares or bonds, then it makes it more expensive over time for that company to be able to raise money. Um, and that in turn, of course, can make them less profitable um, and so managers, you know, have have a financial incentive to improve the ESG profile of their companies um, through, you know, through that channel. Um, the other um, point I was going to make is with respect to the Mercer funds is that we, um, as well as investing into listed assets, we also invest into unlisted assets, so in property and infrastructure. And so we can see direct benefits there by um, specifically targeting um, sustainable investments. So for example, in the property portfolios, you know, there's been a very clear focus over a number of years um, um, by ourselves and the managers that we delegate to 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 invest into energy efficient buildings, and we've seen a you know real improvement and and some you know, really good things happen there. And the other areas on the infrastructure, so renewable energy projects that our um, unlisted funds have have targeted. So, for example, wind farms in Portugal um, and other renewable energy. Um, uh, investments in India and the Philippines, um, and a wastewater treatment plant in China, as an example. So, particularly in those developing countries, you know they need capital um, to be able to, you know, to invest in, in improving um, environmental conditions there. Yeah, it's, uh, this is a really interesting example, and and uh, I guess for many investors, they they like the idea of of kind of less of the bad stuff and invest more in things that they think are important for sustainability and and for the future so so it's great great to hear examples of that the uh, um, and we will we will have uh, a session in future on on that uh, positive impact investing the the impact investing because it's obviously something that has a real public resonance um, but there's not a lot of kind of retail products available in the market yet that uh, that have that as a, a as a major focus. Although I'm sure you're you're thinking about uh, about that in terms of uh, fund development for for the future. Um, so let's uh, let's carry on and and 
I just have a final question before we open up for, for uh, questions. So if you haven't already put your questions and comments on uh, um, the chat uh, facility or on, on Facebook, please do so. Now would be a good time. Um, so uh, the the for a lot of people, all this kind of ethical stuff and, you know, the uh, making an impact on sustainability is fine, but people also want to have financial returns. So the question is, um, can you do this and still earn good returns? And uh, um, if I can start off with you, Simon, first. Um, that's a fantastic question. And it's, there's not a straightforward answer to it because really it depends. Depends how you implement it and what and 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 when you implement it. So, look, here's here's what our research has suggested. If you take um, the environment and social and governance uh, factors are very important risk return factors in all investing, and so all investment managers should be taking them to account because their fundamental accountability as a fiduciary is to deliver returns at a certain level of acceptable risk. To their investors, um, so if you look at it from a risk side, it's a it's a, a very clear part of the puzzle that needs to be worked. And returns is one lens, but risk is the other. Um, the the other is that to to date, exclusion type processes around poorly rated ESG companies has led to better performing risk adjusted portfolios. So there's good empirical evidence to show that this is actually the case. And that's intuitive because it makes sense that that companies that are poorly rated, performing badly in environmental or or not cognizant of social issues or the governances and tatters should be poorly performing type companies. Uh, but there are nuances to it. So buying companies that are relatively poorly rated in one of those dimensions, but are, who are making certain efforts and driving change and becoming better at what they do, uh, tends to be paying off a dividend. I think there's some evidence there, which again is part of why we've approached it in an engaged model. Uh, we think that both you can generate better risk-adjusted return outcomes and you also can get better outcomes because you're advocating companies for change, which then feeds back to some of those types of, of outcome. So, so the arguments from us are that the empirical evidence is certainly there on both risk return dimensions that it's worked in the past um, and that this should be expected to work uh, in the future. You know, there are interesting theoretical arguments. So to, to Philip's point about exclusions driving up the higher weight of the weighted average cost of capital, uh, if you flip that, of course, the weighted average cost of capital happens to be the return that investors in a company in aggregate expect to get. So I think I think we're in for quite some time of a nice ESG dividend paid off by implementing these processes. But I suspect in a decade or so time, it's going to become a lot more nuanced to, to what you're doing, and it will have to be implemented right down at security level to be effective. Okay, that's uh, that's really helpful, Rebecca. Um, I I agree with what Simon said. I think you know, um, if we step back and you think about the, how a company was made up in the seventies, about just under 20% of companies' value was made up of intangible assets, so ESG factors, and now it's about 86% of a company's value. So you can't ignore these factors any longer. I think um, our belief is that over the longer term, um, implementing an ESG-type strategy approach will deliver the same, if not slightly better, returns than mainstream funds. That's over the longer term. And why we believe that is because of the risks that Simon's talked about, 
the investment process identifies the risks that could be associated with some of these companies. So a number of sectors, as you all know, are facing quite significant headwinds into the future, some fossil fuel companies, some tobacco companies. Um, and also by investing in better quality companies that can provide more sustainable cash flows and have more sustainable business models over the longer term, um, you know, that should also give you a better return outcome. And saying that, though, there's also swings and roundabouts. Obviously, if you have a fossil fuel policy and you don't own oil stocks and the oil price rallies, then your strategy is probably going to understand underperform in that environment. And um, we saw that a similar thing happen during the GFC. Um, ethical funds actually, global equity ethical funds actually outperformed, and that's because a lot of the ESG processes did actually um, go underweight or did not own the financial services sector, and that was one of the sectors that was, you know, adversely impacted. So it, swing and, it swings and roundabouts, it's cyclical. However, over the longer term, um, we believe that they'll provide the same, if not a better, slightly better return. Yeah. And that point about uh, systemic issues across sectors is, is kind of interesting. In the last time I looked at, at the data, uh, coal companies have had a return of minus 28% per annum for the past decade, and oil and gas companies have halved in value over the past five years. So uh, certainly funds that have been underweight or, or completely excluded, those, uh, those companies have, uh, have benefited from it. But as you say, Rebecca, sometimes that doesn't happen. But, you know, perhaps perhaps the, the evidence says uh, that overall and in, in terms of the long-term average, um, I, I think, you know, the evidence you'd have to read is to say that overall ethical funds have, have uh, done at least as well, if not better. Uh, Philip, what, what's uh, what's your perspective? Yeah, so um, support um, uh, uh, what... Um, uh, the others have said, I mean, it, there's literally thousands of studies covering this topic and uh, then there's studies into the studies, the so-called meta-studies, which uh, okay. to try and, um, you know, draw conclusions from all of those. Um, and on balance, um, you know, to us, they, they do confirm our belief that you know, consideration of ESG factors um, at the company level um, and in different asset classes can lead to outperformance over the, over the longer term. Um, I mean, it's not to say that it's easy, um, compared to say, you know, simply excluding companies, um, integration of of ESG into investment decision making in portfolios does require skill, um, you know, and, and a clearly defined investment style. And you know, as um, uh, it's been mentioned, you know, consideration of the appropriate time periods. Um, you know, so um, and that that's essentially what our researchers are are aiming to identify. Okay. We uh, we better uh, go into some questions because we've got some uh, some great questions here. Um, Tracy Patterson's asked if there are a range of different frameworks for companies to report on ESG issues. Um, so the question for the panelists is whether there are particular frameworks that they look for in considering how well a company is um, dealing with ESG issues. So. She mentioned particularly GRI framework, integrated reporting, uh, reporting against the sustainable development goals, et cetera. Any one of those frameworks that, that you favor from, from corporates? And we'll try and do a little bit of a quick round on these. So if we can keep that fairly, fairly quick. Philip, you first. Um, so, uh, well, so one is, I mean, the TCFD and the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures um, 
And so um, that's, I mean, we've recently re released a, um, a paper um, uh, that's sort of aimed to, um, uh, you know, discuss um, how our funds are addressing the, the issue of climate change, you know, through, through um, modelling and carbon footprints. Um, and in, in a particularly sort of socially responsible portfolio that we also um, have, uh, um, which um, the underlying investment managers are um, reporting um, in, term, uh, in relation to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Simon, do, do you want to add something? Um, yeah, so we have put quite a reliance on using extensive third parties to provide a lot of our ratings and research because um, we're relatively small in a global context and they've, they've got thousands of people looking at these. Um, so we put a lot of, lot of emphasis on, on that. Um, but some of the particular metrics, so carbon footprints are now becoming a metric that's increasingly reported by, car, by companies and also... Um, as Philip mentioned, their measurements about how well they're achieving certain standards that they've signed up to. Uh, diversity metrics is another one, which is important at a governance level. So boards that are diverse in a broad sense, including gender, uh, are, are key inputs into, into uh, the performance of businesses, uh, which again is intuitive and makes sense. Better, more diverse boards tend to make better, more diverse decisions around a company. Um, we're also finding now that with the rise of big data and the ability of algorithms and AI, that large databases are starting to be formulated outside of the formal channels that a company might report themselves. Um, so they'll be doing surveys, the staff surveys that are now public that, that staff might do not run by the company or employer themselves that are available. So there's a number of entities that are now aggregating these reports and giving insights into the companies that you really couldn't get previously. Uh, and I think this is something that's just going to increase more and more. Um, so there's quite an emphasis on, on this, some of this, this uh, less obvious data that's starting to emerge that gives you insights into companies as well. Very interesting. And, and of course, it, it does rely on the integrity of the underlying data. And of course, there's always some questions about, about that. But uh, yeah, that, that's uh, it's an interesting issue. Uh, Rebecca. Um, so Anchor Capital, for our investment teams, um, they have their own proprietary investment processes where they've kind of, each asset class is different and unique, but they've developed their own framework for assessing companies. Um, and because we've been doing this for quite a long time, they're quite well established now. They do also draw on the expertise of third-party um, research houses as well, just to add to the research. And um, our global equity team actually does use a lot of that big data, Simon, as well, which is quite interesting hearing you talk about it. They also conduct a lot of their own research meetings with customers of, of their companies that they're looking to invest in and, and do interviews with ex-employees to see, you know, see what other information they can find. Um, from a reporting point of view, we do use the sustainable development goals. We um, have also been doing quite a lot of work on the impact management project, which is more associated with impact investing. Um, so it really depends on what we're doing because we manage across a, quite a broad range of asset classes, both in the listed space but also direct property and infrastructure. Um, it really depends what framework suits the asset class best as to what we use. Okay, good. Um, so a question coming in from, from Facebook, which is a really interesting, very relevant one. Um, are the standardised ESG regulations in New Zealand, so for reporting or, or use by, uh, by funds, 
And and I think the answer is is no. Um, so the question for you all is, uh, what kind of standardised regulations might might be helpful? Uh, and uh, do you, do you have any? Uh, have you made any specific proposals on this? Uh, it's a it's I think a, a very live uh, very live issue. Uh, who wants to kick that off? Well, I might. That's Simon here, Barry. Uh, look, yeah. that's two. That's I think standardised metrics would be excellent, and if we could create a national standard, that would be great. Um, I'd be looking for um, three particular ones that I think are really quite important to, to particularly um, the, the portfolio, uh, the quality of investment. So one is a diversity measure, not just at board level, but through the executive of business and into it and how they're managing that. I think that's an important metric around the performance of a company and its investment. Uh, another one would be the carbon footprint that that company actually has and the actions they're taking are around changing that. And a third would be a metric that measures aggregate company risk to ESG um, factors or particularly say you could bring that down to climate change. So a metric this company is exposed to climate change on these particular dimensions and 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 that metric is standardized would be three good ones okay great rebecca or philip um, i think i think the tcfd framework's a really good framework for identifying climate risk and understanding scenario analysis around you know different business models and how they're exposed and how they're going to be dealing with it i think um i know that nzx has you know got some um, requirements under their listing rules for disclosure. But I guess that's part of the issue, right, is that um, not, not all companies are disclosing in the same way. Some aren't disclosing at all. Um, so you're not comparing apples with apples. So it would be good to have some sort of integrated ESG disclosure. Um, but otherwise, I guess, if you think about it um, from a different point of view, I guess having any form of formalisation in terms of investment approach sort of is taking away the what you're paying an investment manager. You know, you're going to an investment manager for their investment philosophy and um, proprietary processes and their uniqueness. And, and you don't want um, A&B Capital, Mercer and Kiwi Wealth being the same and having the same approach. You know, um, it's good to have people doing things in different ways. Um, and if we all did things exactly the same way, um, you know, you're just going to end up with um, a vanilla Kind of approach. So I think you know there's there's place for regulation and consistency in some places, but in other places I think you know you need to let the investment managers and um, have their own unique processes. I think Philip, we've been talking about uh, ESG processes for reporting by companies. How about by funds? What what uh, what kind of ESG uh, standardisation or measures uh, could be could be a requirement for for fund managers? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and there there was um, uh, you know submissions through the industry through through to the FMA on that uh, question recently, um, and um, I mean our our view is you know we we support having independent certification um, for for fund managers, um, and 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 you know you referred to the Responsible Investment Association. It's a combination of that and having you know the transparency so that the the information is available for the for the customers and and um, uh, you know that's you know your your um, side of the mindful money um, information is is you know providing that service. It's uh, aggregating information together and you know just making it very very available for um, for, for people to look at. 
Cool. Good. Um, thank you for, for that. So just uh, maybe uh, we've got time for one more question. So um, Nicola asks, I've heard the term greenwashing a lot. Uh, how do you call out greenwashing and what methods are used? And and maybe tangentially, it relates to your, your question, your, your comment, Rebecca, where you said each manager has a different approach to ESG, but it can often leave the public feeling confused and like, you know, there's, there's not necessarily um, uh, enough substance behind it. And I know the FMA has, has undertaken an inquiry on greenwashing and, and I guess we're yet to see any uh, uh, specific results from that. But, but uh, what, what do you think about, uh, about uh, how, how we can bring some discipline into yeah. into claims around ESG because I think that is needed to to bolster public confidence. Do yeah. you want to kick off on that? Well, I think it, I mean, it probably comes back to um, the the previous point um, actually um, around having having a sort of a formal independent certification process and um, um, you know for, this is for funds as opposed to say. Uh, green bonds, although you know that could be you know same a different kind of certification there, but um, um, yeah, I mean I th I think it, yeah, it needs to be independent, it needs to be thorough, um, and um, you know, that that will go a long way towards um, addressing it. Cool. I agree. I think and um, so I think that Rea is actually making some changes to its certification program at the moment. So at the moment, it just gives a certification, um, which is just like a seal for each of the funds that it certifies. Um, they're doing a recertification process at the moment where they're actually um, probably going to have three levels of certification. Um, you know, I don't think they've actually disclosed exactly what it will be at the moment, but it will be sort of like a one, two, three-star model. So it'll be really clear to, the, to their clients or people looking to buy a fund as to what each of those ratings means and what you'll be getting. Um, and the certification process is um, part of it is you have to submit evidence on you um, what you're saying that you do so that they can cite and see should be made public, so it should be transparent. And that's what Philip said before. You know, transparency is the key to all this. Um, people can greenwash. Um, however, if you dig beneath the surface, and you shouldn't have to dig too far because it should be on everybody's website, you know, their engagement work that they're doing, their voting that they're doing, all of that sort of stuff. And it's all about being transparent so people can see what you're up to. Um, and doing on their behalf because that's you know we're we're doing we're all in it together and we're doing it for our investors um, who are ultimately investing in the funds. Sure, Simon. You look, know, look. I I don't have much to add there. Just to, to reiterate, I think RIA, which I'm not sure if we've explained what the acronym. Of course, it's Responsible Investing Association of Australasia is the preeminent body across both Australia and New Zealand that has created this. Um, the standard framework for rating funds and it's doing an excellent job. And I think that's a key one. UMPRI, of course, is the other entity that has um, a series of different uh, requirements in order to be UMPRI signatories or, um, uh, and to meet their standards. So I think we've got in those two bodies some excellent standards that are there. But to your point about greenwashing, you know, I mean, I think this, it, it applies to tokenism across the board. 
Uh, greenwashing, of course, implies it's particularly looking at environmental, uh, but there's much broader, there's social, there's governance, and of course we move right into even ethical, where investors are, are increasingly asking for their personal ethics to be manifest in the investments uh, that they place it further up the continuum. Um, so I think meeting certain standards that we already have um, and transparency, as both speakers have said, is is the real key here. Cool. So, um, so I think that's a pretty consistent message. We uh, uh, we recognise that certification has a role to play, and uh, um, as as the panelists have said, uh, all three funds are, are re certified. Uh, Responsible Investment Association of Australasia certified. Uh, and uh, Mindful Money recognises that certification, and uh, uh, and and so features features these three funds, amongst others, on on uh, on our Mindful Money platform, and we uh, we try to add some transparency around uh, the investment portfolios as well as all of the other uh, factors. So so uh, just a maybe a quick one line final. Final word, maybe sentence or two. Uh, what what do you see as as some of your big challenges coming forward? What are you working on? What what gets you excited? Something you can just kind of leave uh, leave the audience with uh, to expect from the future. Simon, seeing you on on screen. Sure. Um, look, the thing the thing that personally excites me most is I think. The challenge, I certainly had this, and I think a lot of investment managers had the intellectual challenge of how do you reconcile responsible investing with maximizing risk-adjusted return fiduciary obligation of a fund manager or an investment manager. And that really was a problematic issue for many of us um, in the early stages of this. Um, as we mentioned, I think the evidence is now there strongly that you can do both, um, and indeed you must attempt to have ESG in your processes because it's such a risk impact. So I'm pretty excited because I think that that, that battle's over now. It's now well recognized that this should be in place and that we are, we're really only in the beginning stages of this really becoming a widespread across investing communities around the world. And therefore, at the end, it really, really will have an impact both for the investor and for, the, uh, for society as a whole. So uh, uh, pretty exciting times ahead. Cool. Rebecca? Um, I think, you know, for us, it's always about, um, you know, the great thing about the industry and those who are committed to this is we're all in it for the right reasons and we all want it to grow and for more people to be investing this way. So um, I'm excited about that. Um, for us personally, we're doing quite a lot of work in the climate change space and um, and we are always looking to um, do more work in the impact investment space and also just looking to actually just improve, like build on what we've been doing and improve on that journey. Um, so we're constantly evolving and wanting to deliver a great you know, product to our investors. Cool. Final word, Philip? Um, just you know, two, two things. Is, um, yeah, I mean, climate change, um, uh, where we've produced sort of three big reports over the last sort of um, decade and... Um, uh, just released in uh, the latest of that last year, investing in the time of climate change, um, and so, and that's available for, for people if they want to to look at that online. Um, that, that we're seeing more and more interest from wholesale investors into uh, you know thematic and impact investing, um, and you know we think that that's also something that our you know Kiwi customers um, 
you know would like to to um, to look at and get exposure to. And so, it, you know, as as uh, both Simon and Rebecca have talked about, it does make sense from a long term return and risk perspective. And so, you know, that's something that we're increasingly looking looking at for for the um, for our KiwiSaver funds. Cool. And so those uh, reports that MERS has been doing on climate change are really useful, and I know they're very influential for the New Zealand Super Fund uh, and their climate change strategy. So um, let's uh, conclude there with uh, with huge thanks to the panel, to, to Philip, Simon and Rebecca. Um, a virtual round of applause to you all. Um, uh, next week, 4pm uh, on Thursday, 4th of June, uh, we're talking to the financial commentator, Mary Home, and uh, we're talking about investing during time of crisis. So if you've got any money issues, um, most of you know who Mary Home is. She's kind of uh, a frequent commentator on uh, Radio New Zealand and in the newspapers. Uh, and she's coming in to talk a, a little bit about ethical investing, but, but particularly to talk more about the general issues of how to be a good investor in these times. And uh, I will spend a lot of time uh, um, on Q&A. So, so please come with your questions. Um, in order to register, visit Eventbrite or Mindful Money uh, uh, and uh, or, or come to our Facebook page, 4 o'clock next Thursday. Once again, thank you very much to all the panel. Thanks to all who uh, came online either on Zoom or, or Facebook, and uh, Kaki Piano. Thank you.